I want to start with this. There's a, a lady, she was raised as a, a missionary kid in Africa, and she wrote this great book called The Poisonwood Bible. I don't know if you've heard of that book. She, and her name's Barbara Kingsolver. And she said this one thing through one of her characters in that book. She says, uh, the very least you can do in life is know what you hope for. And the very most you can do in your life is live right up next to that hope underneath it. And so I think that that really, for me, as I talk to people both in the church and outside the church, that's always my pressure point for them. You know, the least you can do in life is actually know what you hope for. The most you can do is live up close and inside that hope. Uh, and that, that, that should be the, the guiding thing that you're driving for. I think that's different from uh, what makes you happy or what feels good or what jives with, you know, your sentiments or, or any of those things. And I think it really pushes people to even understand that. And then for us as Christians to ask the question of, do I know the hope that I have? Uh, do I actually know it? I remember several years ago, I was super critical of Harry Potter, not for witchcraft or anything, but just I thought it was lame. And I, I had a really close friend. She came up to me and she's like, well, Brad, like, have you watched any of the movies? Because the critiques you have are a little off, kind of like my geography. And so she said... She's like, and I was like, well, there was this one time I went to the opening night of the third movie, but I fell asleep halfway through. No, she's like, so you really don't know. It's like, but I've heard all these people talk about it. I've seen how people dress up. You know, I, I've seen the roller coaster. Like, I know, I know Harry Potter. And she's like, no, I think you should read the books. And I said, all right, fine, I'll read the books. And so I read all, there's seven of them, uh, and they're really long, but uh, entertaining. And I, and I did it for, for her as a birthday gift. She was like, read it over the course of the next year for, for my birthday. That's what she wanted for me to do. And, and I did. And it's amazing that it was nothing like what I thought. And it wasn't, the story itself was different than what I had perceived. But I was just building it all off of what other people were saying. And I think one of the big challenges we have of, if you call it deconversion or just people who've walked away from the faith, uh, the vast majority of America has religious church experience. But yeah, and yet they're not really eager, like views of what the church is like, uh, positive views, that, that rating is going down like crazy. And so why, why is that? And I think predominantly what we've done is we've tried to train people and equip people in, uh, in Jesus without showing them who Jesus is and his words and, and what he's actually like. We haven't challenged people. Know the hope that you have and live inside that hope. And so for you, like in this room, you clearly want to grow, want to be a, a, a discipler, a disciple maker. I'm just gonna you know, say that maybe for this next little bit, we can ask that question, how can we be a community of saints that live inside hope? and uh, declare and offer hope to, to many other people. Uh, my last little illustration, I have a really good friend uh, who works with at-risk uh, young people in the, the south central part of Los Angeles, which is also where I live, but he, uh, he uses hip-hop and poetry and art to, to really engage with kids. But when you ask him about that, you're like, oh, so you're like a musician or an artist? And he says, no, I'm a hope dealer. Ideal hope, 
Like, that's what my job, there's a bunch of people dealing other stuff out here. I'm a hope dealer. Uh, and he's really good. And if you want to donate to him, go to uh, hearthecry.org because he'd love it. But uh, how can we become hope dealers uh, in the place that we've been? How can a community become a hope dealer? So I'm going to go back to where we left off and get into the words that Jesus said, like, like I did when I read Harry Potter for the first time. And just a little side note, I'm not a big Harry Potter fan after reading the book, so <laughs> it was different than I thought, but also... I had people in my church telling me it was the greatest pieces of literature ever created, and then I read it, and I was like, not so much. Anyway, <laughs> so don't come to me afterwards and be like, oh, I really want to talk to you about Harry Potter. It's like, I already have an 11-year-old that I have to do that with. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 13. This is after Jesus, I'll just read 14 too. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And then this, we're left to assume, is the good news of God. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Or the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This, this bit, the time has come. It's as if uh, Jesus shows up and he says, this whole story, the whole story of this neighborhood, the whole story of this city, the whole story of this world, the time for the conclusion to that story, for the climax, for the thing that you've been waiting for, that time has come. Uh, you know, there was this big chant uh, throughout the last five years is, you know, time's up. I don't know if you've heard that chant, if you went to any protests uh, or witness protests or anything like that, but time's up. Time's up for injustice, time's up for men, time's up for, for anything, right? And, uh, and I think that there's a, there's a deep cry within the human soul for the, for the time of evil and darkness and sin for that to be over, for the time of destruction, for the time of pollution and the perversion of humanity, for that to be done. Uh, I think what Jesus is speaking to, and, and as Mark just opens up this gospel, he's saying that whole old, old story that, that we grew up knowing, this is, this is the peak moment of that story. That time has come. Uh, the, the story of the scriptures, I know you guys know it, but just bear with me because it's so sweet, right? In the beginning, God formed humanity. Uh, he formed a world. There was, there was wild and waste. Tohu vavohu. It's my favorite Hebrew word. It's the only one I always ace on my Hebrew exams. Tohu vavohu. In the beginning, the world was wild and waste, and, and God hovered over the darkness of the deeps, and then he spoke, let us create, right? And he, he formed water and sea and land and birds and uh, plants that could reproduce themselves, and those plants still are reproducing themselves. Uh, creating dirt, and then get, got down really close to that dirt uh, and formed and then breathed life into Adam. And then from, that, from Adam created Eve, and they had this beautiful, wonderful walking cool in the garden of the day. Or cool. They walked in the garden in the cool of the day. And, uh, and they, they had this wonderful, beautiful life together without shame, without burdens of guilt, or any of those things. They just had life, life abundant. Uh, 
And then uh, they, they sought to, to gain their own way. You know, the, the serpent comes and says, did God really say, surely you can eat from this? Isn't God doesn't want you to do this because he knows that you'll be like God because God is kind of uh, withholding and God's insecure. He doesn't want you to thrive because if you thrive, then he can't thrive. Like that's what he kind of plays on. And, and they choose rebellion and to, to live a life separated from the abundant life that they had. Maybe there's a better one. And then from that point on, it's kind of this downward spiral chaos moment of people seeking to to fix the world and failing at it, people trying to get good with God again, but not being able to to sustain that fervor and that desire. All along, God's been promising them, like, from that very first moment, he's going to crush uh, the, the, the devil, he's gonna crush Satan, crush the serpent, and the serpent's gonna bite back. And, and there's this promise even with the prophets of there's gonna be a king that comes. It's gonna be like David, but he's gonna be better. And when that king comes, he's gonna suffer. He's gonna serve. He's gonna usher us all into the mountain of God. And there we're gonna drink great drink as he swallows up death and we'll have a feast. And, and that's what the prophets were all talking about. And then the people that, that Jesus is talking to Uh, The prophets were great, but then they entered into captivity or they stayed back while their cities burned to the ground and got destroyed. And they were left wondering what is actually going to happen now. Uh, When will someone come and make the world right and whole again? When will there be a blessing for all nations, like he said to Abraham uh, and Sarah? And then Jesus comes and he says this, the time has come. And Jesus is saying that the good news about God, the good news that belongs to God is that the time of waiting for a rescuer, the time of waiting for someone to enter into this world, or if you think back to the story before, the, the, the guy sitting in his kitchen banging and banging saying no one is going to come, the time of believing that, the time of having that hang over your head is over. We're now in the time of Jesus has come, he's entered into this world. Uh, it's, it's great. In, uh, in Luke, there's, in the incarnation, there's angels and visions and choruses and shepherds, right? In John, there's philosophy, the word was God and with God, and it gets complicated. And Matthew, he, you know, there's, there's kings that are coming, and, and Joseph has a dream, and it's all really, really amazing, like building up the God coming into the world. Uh, it's almost like Hemingway kind of simplicity, the way Mark does it. He says, Jesus comes into this, to Galilee, and then he says, the time has come. Like, that's the time that we live in. And I think for us to be a people of hope, uh, to be communities of hope that are, that are challenging people, reasoning with people, uh, as, as Peter says, living in such a hope that's asking other people to say, can you give us a reason for the hope that you have? Uh, to be that kind of people means, I think, to be people that are not just immersed into the biblical story, but believing and living out that we're in this age of the mission of God happening right before us, that the time has been complete. So that's one like big base level principle, that we'd be a people of the story uh, that, that are living out that implication that, that this is the world that we live in, which I think is kind of trying Am I hitting myself up here? No. That's that huge, lush beard that I have. Uh, from Anyway. Uh, 
I don't know what I was talking about. Anyway, be a people of the story. There it is. The next thing he says, he says, the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom of God has come, is at hand. And the kingdom is the, where God gets what he's always wanted without contest. I had a professor in seminary, he just pounded this into our heads, that, that the kingdom of God is where God's rule and reign is uncontested. It's uncontested, it's contested in many areas, but where, where the kingdom of God is, and the people and the humans and the, the reality of the kingdom of God is what God wants he gets within the kingdom of God. All that peace and human flourishing and thriving, he gets that in the kingdom of God. Mercy, compassion, justice, that happens in the kingdom of God. His rule and his reign is there. Uh, a professor in our city, Michelle Lee Barnwell, she writes and discusses all the time, that the kingdom of God is the great reversal of things. Uh, we, we've, we think darkness, evil, sin, that always gets the last word. The great reversal is, no, light, salvation, forgiveness, compassion, that gets the last word. We think power through arms and strength of you know, our muscles and might and coercion, that's how you get real power. But the kingdom reverses that and says, no, it's through humility and laying down the life of the one who's worthy of everything, that's where you get uh, the kingdom. And that's where you get the power of the kingdom. And so this phrase, the kingdom of God has come near, it's a big moment, right? He's saying that it's so close you could reach out and touch it. That's what it means when it says the kingdom of God is at hand. Like it's, it's you're there. You just, you could grab it. That's how palpable it is to us. And what I think is, is also amazing is there's, there's this other thing happening where the kingdom of God is at hand because the kingdom is standing before them with his hands, you know, that he's going to be pierced with. And that there's in one sense the kingdom of God is so close that you could touch it, and in other sense the kingdom of God is so close that it's reaching into this world, that the reign and the rule and every broken, destroyed thing has come, and he's transforming all of that back into what he always intended. Uh, in the coming verses, I'll just do a real quick run through. For the rest of this first chapter of Mark, it's so fast-paced, he's just plowing through it, but he quickly does some stuff that answer the question, what is the kingdom of God coming to us actually look like? He first goes to these disciples and he turns them from having this purpose of casting nets into the water and suddenly they have this purpose of the mission of God to restore humanity, like that God will do that through him. He changes and alters their purpose completely. Then he goes and there's this man who's captive by evil and dark evil spirits and God quiets those spirits and calls out freedom for him. That the shackles and the burden of evil fall off and he gets to walk uh, sanely with God and he tells and spreads the word quickly all over. Uh, then there's uh, Peter's mother-in-law who's just sick and just has this fever. She's just a little unwell. Uh, it's pretty, that's one of my favorite stories because it's kind of like, hey, take some Tylenol, rest, drink some water, you know, that high-level medical advice. Some of you guys are doctors, right, and nurses. You go to school for tons of time, and then what you learn how to do is just tell people you should take some Tylenol and rest and drink some water. But that's the kind of illness that this lady has, like a flu, like a, a virus that's just gonna run its course. There's no, like from the context of the passage, there's no sense in which, oh, it's this thing that's gonna take her down. 
uh, like several other people in the story. It's just this momentary thing that's keeping her from living a full life in that one moment. She has some wounds and some baggage maybe, you know, like she's sick, but just slightly. And I think that that's pretty, that transformation is remarkable because we might think of ourselves as pretty good. Like we're not on the streets. We're not uh, roughing it. We don't have this big, terrible past or present. We're just mostly making it through life with a few snags here and there. But really what I've learned is it's not the, the big mountain of burden of shame and guilt that really keeps us from the kingdom of God. For many of us, it's just this knapsack of tiny wounds and grievances that just keep us from moving anywhere. And Jesus goes to this woman, touches her, pulls her up, and she gets to walk fully in serving others. It's pretty, pretty great. That's the kingdom of God coming. Uh, Jesus goes to a solitary place. That's kingdom of God coming. He goes to this man with leprosy who comes to him and says, if you're willing, make me clean. He asks for cleanliness. There's the leprosy. They're outside of the community in quarantine. Now we all know what that was like. It used to be complicated to explain that. But now we know, shamed and burdened of, I can't believe you could possibly get that disease. And there he is, way out. And in that time, in the biblical law, like you had, if you had that kind of a disease, you were not clean, not worthy to be in the holy presence of God and with God's holy people. You had to be on the outskirts. And so this person isn't just asking for, hey, can you take you know, this disease away from me? He's asking for inclusion into the people of God and inclusion into a relationship with God. And what Jesus does is he, he makes him clean. And he sends them to the very center of the worship experience in the temple, and he does all that. He was a person who's, I've got some places to go and some things to do, but I can't because of my uncleanliness. And if you go through the whole Old Testament, what you see is that that uncleanliness is really just tied very neatly to shame. This idea that something has happened to me that will not allow me to go forward or go close to others. And what Jesus does is he transforms shame into wholeness. Uh, and, it's, and it's amazing. He forgives a man of his sins who was paralyzed, taking guilt, making that person forgiven. Like this is the transformation that takes place. Uh, there's, a, there's a few more with Levi, but I'm just gonna stop right there. If we're to be the kind of people that see a world who kind of wants nothing to do with Christianity, suddenly desire, hope, and transformation. It's if we can be a people that see those things take place among ourselves. If we see the, the, the nagging wounds find healing in Jesus, if we pursue that. Uh, if uh, we find people that are isolated through shame brought into wholeness and inclusion into the community of God. If we see people struggling with the, the demons of this life and they get to see that, that captivity wither away and then walk in freedom and abundant whole life. Like that's the stuff to pursue. I think sometimes in Christian communities we get confused or just distracted and we think the main purpose is if we could get 
everybody to understand the Bible more and then we'd be able to do it. Or if we could all have really good answers to gender issues or if we could find the perfect wording to describe uh, the beautiful, you know, biblical ethic of sexuality, then like the people will understand and that would be really helpful. The thing is that those aren't the real things keeping people in bondage and separate. It's these things, seeing uh, the captivity uh, set free, seeing uh, the, the sick made healthy. Like that's, and that is the work of the Christian community, but it's an incredible apologetic to those outside. Uh, and then lastly, Jesus says, after all that, what are we supposed to do with it? The kingdom of God has come near. It's a pretty short gospel proclamation. Uh, the time has come. Kingdom of God is near. Then he says, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe. Repentance, I used to think a ton, was really hard for people, like, to, to change. Like, repent, we all know, like, repentance means to change your direction and your orientation, to turn from one thing to another, uh, to turn from burning to turn to blessing, right? Uh, and I thought, man, we just don't want to do that as people, as humans. Repentance is no fun. But then I began to see repentance taking place all the time, all around me. Uh, you know, somebody eats all of this food. Uh, they don't exercise. They don't work out. They go to the doctor. The doctor says, hey, you need to eat this other thing instead. Or you need to take gluten out of your diet. If you take gluten out of your diet, you're going to all be good. And then the person goes and they take gluten. They never eat bread again or real bread ever again. And they, they repent and they change entirely. Or people who are in a relationship and they think that they like it and they enjoy it. They're, they're, you know, texting this person, all the cute emojis. They're posting on Instagram. I really, really love this person. A few weeks later, they're like, I think that relationship's a little toxic. And then they get out of it. They repented. They're like, oh, I don't, I don't want that anymore. And so they repented. Or they thought, oh, what, I, what would really make me happy is if I get a job in this career, and if I really pursue that, uh, and I get to the top of it, then I'll be happy. And I see this all the time in, in our city. They, they get the degree. They network a bunch. They get an entry-level job. They get promoted. They get to work on the projects that they've always wanted to work on. And then they're like, this isn't satisfying. And they switch jobs, careers, vocations, the whole thing. That's, that's repentance. We practice repentance all the time, uh, regularly, daily even. Um, I used to drink a lot of coffee. Now I drink matcha because my doctor said my stomach was going to explode. And I was like, I don't, that sounds bad, so I won't do that. Uh, we make many, many different repentances all the time. What makes biblical repentance to the good news of God so different is we're saying, I'm going to alter, because what we do is we carry this whole kind of collection of hopes with us everywhere. We've got our like work hope that we're holding on to, our family hope, our financial hope, our political hope, our, our sexual pleasure hope, and we're carrying it all with us through life. And the repentance that's offered in the gospel is to drop all of those hopes and then cling only to Jesus, and he's the only one that will ever fulfill, that will ever change me, that only, the only one that has the power to transform me, none of these other things do. And then we're gonna align the rest of those things behind that central hope. 
Uh, that's what I think he's talking about when he says uh, in the parable of the plower. He's like, I'm looking for people to follow me who are going to put their hands to the plow and, and only look up and only walk towards me, right? You guys know that parable? It's pretty great because to plow, this is great. You guys are about to, uh, I said I don't know anything about geography, and now I'm going to talk about plow. This works really great in cities. Uh, but, you know, to plow, old school, I, oh man, now I'm super nervous. Uh, <laughs> Back in the day, you would put your hand around the plow and you would have a horse in front of you that you would have, to, you had to do many things, track where you're plowing, you had to hold on to another thing, you had lots of tasks you had to do, right? So Jesus wasn't saying, don't do anything except follow me. What he is saying is, no, you have to align everything in your life. only towards me as the only exclusive hope. So all the the politics and the family and the kids, instead of you holding it up, Jesus is holding it up. Instead of you trying to muscle your way through life, uh, you know, picking up and exchanging these little hopes of like, not this family anymore, this family, or not this work anymore, this work. Instead of doing all of that, you align everything that you are underneath the kingdom. And that's what he's talking about with repentance. And then he says, that coincides with belief. And I think, uh, and I still think, belief is incredibly hard. We live in a cynical age. We live in, a, in an age of tons of betrayal to the things that we're supposed to believe. Uh, we're told one thing, the next day it's something else. But it's even deeper than that. I think the, the anger that we all, maybe some of us felt, when they said, oh, put a mask on, it'll save your life. Oh, take the mask off, it won't save your life. Oh, put the mask back on, it'll save your life. And the anger you feel of being just told things that you know, like, maybe these people don't know what's true and what I can actually put my trust in. The reason we feel so much anger around that is we had parents that said, hey, we love you and we love each other, and then they didn't anymore. Uh, We had uh, professors or bosses who said, I care about you. These are the values of our company. Aren't these values so cool? And then those values aren't lived out. Uh, We've had, you know, stars and heroes and people that we just long to be like only to find out that they're not like that at all. And all of that stuff has happened within the church, right? And so to believe, like, that's so hard. I think belief is incredibly hard because we come in contact with the world and the realities of the world so often. And so what we have is this big erosion within our souls to, I don't want to do that anymore. Uh, Even the, the big American dream story of, you know, when you graduate high school, someone gets up and quotes a Dr. Seuss poem of like, oh, the places you'll go. You're going to accomplish so much wonderful stuff, right? And then you're like, yeah, I will. And then you go to college and you do that and you're like, sweet. And then what do you get for the privilege of going to college or going to training school? Here's a job. And you're like, now I'm going to get it. Now I'm going to get that thing that they said I would feel in the, oh, the places you'll go when you'll be happy and you'll produce. And in that producing, you'll be whole. And then you produce there for a while and you're like, oh, but I got to get promoted a little bit so then I can get better projects. And then you get promoted and you're like, well, this isn't really the thing because 
I don't just need to be promoted, I also need my stocks to vest, and I need uh, people around me to know, I need to serve on some panels where I get to talk as an expert, and, and then so maybe you get promoted a little bit more, and they're like, but these aren't the clients that I really want, and my name isn't listed there as one of the partners yet. Uh, I don't know if this is your career pattern or not. And then you get to the end of all of it, and uh, we have a really close friend who's whose dad uh, went all the way to the top of one of the, like a Fortune 500 company, and he led it as a vice president for years, and at his retirement party, what they did is they brought in a Costco sheet cake, you know, like one of those big chocolate sheet cakes, and they put a candle in the middle, and they said, we're thankful that you served this company. And he walked away, and she said, that's when I knew the, the, this whole thing is a lie. The American dream ends at a Costco sheet cake. That's what she says all the time. Uh, and so belief is so hard. And I think within the church, we have to become honest with the, the challenges of belief. Um, functionally, uh, you know, we don't believe this stuff. We could pass a test. Uh, you know, I could go around in a room was like, do you believe Jesus died and rose again? And you'd all be like, yeah, I'll pass that test. And is it for forgiveness of sins? Yeah, I'll pass that test. Do you believe God's a good father? Yeah, of course, God's a good father. Do you think God will provide all that you need? Yeah, of course, God will provide all my, I need. And then we go out and the way we live our lives is as if none of that is true. Uh, we're, we're functionally, uh, some of us are functional atheists. Uh, an atheist believes there's no God. It's just me. Uh, I'm just like an orphan in this world. And what I got to do is I got to make sure that my, uh, my life continues to exist. Atheists are great, at, and I have a lot of atheist friends. Uh, they're, they're kind of fun people to party with because they're like, hey, Drink today, die tomorrow. It doesn't really matter. This is it. We're just vapor. We're just running through life. Uh, no one's looking out for you. No one's coming for you. So what you need to do is look out for yourself, care for yourself, make this life as pleasurable or as enjoyable as possible because this is all there is. And uh, yeah, I'm not super old, but I've been around Christians and disciples long enough to know that that is a primary function orientation that Christians have all over the world. Yeah, on Sunday, he's my redeemer, he's my living hope. And then every other day of the week, we live as if nobody is coming for us, nobody's looking out for us. And I know that that's the case because we're filled with the anxiety and the sense to control and dominate and build a little kingdom for ourselves. That's, and why, you know, one of the main problems as I talk to church leaders is they're always frustrated that so many Christians only want comfort, and comfort is the driver for everything that they do. Why is comfort the driver among the American church? Because we don't believe Jesus is our comfort. We believe a couch is our comfort, and thick carpet, and bigger air conditioner. Like, that's our comfort. And so that is, for me, we're functional unbelievers. Some of us are functional atheists. The other thing is uh, some of us might be functional agnostics that think, oh, an agnostic believes that there is a God just not knowable. Albert Einstein, he's the 
the most famous agnostic there ever was. And, and he wasn't, when he's talking about surely there's a God, it wasn't him saying, oh, he's a Christian. I remember as a kid thinking that, oh, Einstein's, you know, I found this one code about Einstein. He believes in God. But for him, it was, I believe there is a God. I, I just can't know him and he can't know you. And, and, I, and he doesn't know me or us. He doesn't have a name. He's just out there. And I think, again, in a similar way, uh, for us, even as Christians, we, our, our stated hope and stated belief is that uh, the power and the, of the resurrection is that the, the God of the universe knows my soul, and I can call out to him, and that God has a name and is knowable, that the scriptures are the pure revelation of the character and the heart of God, and the story that he's writing for everything. We can say that on a Sunday or in a Bible study. But then the rest of our days, the rest of our lives are lived of, he's not around me, he's not concerned about me, he's not involved, I can't know him and he can't know me. And I know that that's also true when, uh, if you talk to many pastors today, they will, there's this one study where they rank, you know, how much do people care about this or care about that? Do they care more than you, about the same as you, or less than you? And when it comes to prayer, all pastors, like nearly all pastors, I think it's 80%, believe that everyone in their church cares less about prayer than they do. A lot of other things they care more about. But we don't have a hunger to, to know the living God and call out to him in our daily lives, right? Uh, we, we think, you know, there's a God that I knew, uh, there's a God that I can sing about, but then in my daily life, it's just about me trying to get through it. There's some helpful spiritual practices. There's some really good rhythms. I don't know what I would do if I didn't go to church on Easter and Christmas. It's just part of what I do. But I can't know him and he doesn't change me. Uh, then lastly, I think there's a bunch of us that are spiritual or functional deists. Uh, America is like the deist country. We founded that way, all of it. That, that there is a God and through knowledge, we've come to understand what he is like and what he intended for the world. And now he's not here anymore. He's absent. Uh, he, he started things off. He gave us a good down payment, a good inheritance. And now we need to just do it. We need to fix the world ourselves if we just follow the rule book. And if we just do these things. And I know that that's also a way in which we operate because uh, we, we firmly believe that, that Jesus can't heal us, the rules that we create can heal us. Uh, that, that we can't just love one another in community, we have to create rules for community. Uh, there is a God, he's just not involved or close to me. Uh, and so, for us to be people of belief that's the challenge, is to acknowledge those functional ways in which we do not believe, and then to see Jesus truly is the better and the more whole. Uh, to, the, to the functional atheist, Jesus says, no, no, uh, there is a God. He's walked among you. He's been in this world. He was here. He was present. Someone has come for you. You are not all on your own. There's a, the savior of the entire world came for you and for everyone else. 
Uh, There is no greater pleasure or greater union or greater comfort than knowing me and having me be your hope. Uh, to the functional agnostic, it's, it's quite similar. Jesus says, no, no, to the, to the doubting Thomas, he says, look at my hands. They're scarred for you. Uh, look at my wounds. Look at my flesh. I came uh, not just for you to do this thing, but to be with you and to, to know you uh, so that you could walk into the holiest of places with the living God. Uh, you don't have to be a functional agnostic. To the functional deist, God tells his disciples when he commissions them, we get lost in the go and make disciples part. We functionally like, okay, so now we go and make disciples on our own. But the end of that passage is the best part. Do you know the, the end? The end's killer. Like it's, you know, we'd say it's a banger. Like he says, I will be with you always to the ends of the age. There is no oh, now we go do the marching orders of God on his mission while he kind of sits back in some other planet somewhere. It's like, no, he is with us always to the very ends of the age. The great commission is a commission to a life with him, exclusively, beautifully, that's what it is. And so all of that to say, that's a big long one around belief. But it's this, and this might sound real simple, but it's one of our church's values. It's one of the things we say is our, one of our distinctives. It's one of our strategies. It's to be a church of belief, that we would believe. Uh, that does sound simple, doesn't it? But for the, the world around us and the, the struggles that exist around us, the main calling Uh, for the Christian, for the Christian community is to be a people who continuously return back to belief in Jesus and belief that he is our hope. To go back to that Barbara King Solver quote, to continually live up close inside that hope and not accept our functional uh, atheism or functional agnosticism, but to drive more and more that we would be functional believers, that the belief in our head would get lived out into our souls and with our hands, that we would do that. And I saw some of you guys have the gospel fluency book, and that's a really great tool to go through it. So just read that. And then the, the other things, I'll, I'll, I'm actually going to stop and do Q&A in just a second. But the, through this passage, one of the, my biggest takeaways uh, regularly is Jesus is the main thing happening in our lives. Like these, that's what these words mean. That Jesus came into Galilee, that he proclaimed good news of God, that the time has come, that we're at this point of the story, that the kingdom has come near. He's saying, I am the main thing happening in your life. Every human that has ever lived who, and who continues to live, all of the people that we know, all of our friends, all of our coworkers, the main thing happening in their life is, what are you doing with Jesus? Like, that's it. Like, if all of this is true, that hangs over everything. Are you believing him? Are you returning to him? Are you living into his kingdom? What are you doing with Jesus is the main storyline plot of your life. Uh, And that's what this passage 
fully means. And so if we want to be a, you know, a community bringing other people to hope, the way we're going to do that, I think, is by, by these simple things that we won't forget of being people of the story, of being people that are transformed, participating in the transformation of other people, of being people that repent and believe, uh, not, not rocket science, uh, not outlandish strategies of winning awards and all of these fancy places. It's just basic of like, can Jesus be the main thing in my life? Um, yeah, I think that's probably a good time to, to stop and let you guys talk. If you want to ask questions, but really talk and teach, you can do that, or you can ask questions. Um, and then we'll, we'll take a break. And we end at 2.45, yeah? Is that right? Oh, three. whoa. Fancy. Then I will go to 3.30. Yeah. Uh, any questions? Yeah. What does that look like practically for you? Oh, that's so great. You know, I knew that was going to be a question. <laughs> now, uh, I have some drawings to do later, if that's okay. But... Uh, uh, so, practically, with the belief... Yeah. Living that out. Living that out. For others to see. Mm. Oh, for others to see? Mm. And that will draw other people in. Is what you're saying? Why people are disengaging with church is because they don't see that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Uh, that's a great question. A few few parts of it. So one of the things that we practically talk about in our church is around conversion, and uh, we talk about how there's three conversions in a disciple's life. Uh, there's conversions to Jesus, conversion to his church, and conversion to his mission. And we, and we, you know, back, I think, you know, when I was a kid, we talked about, is Jesus your savior and Lord of your life? You know, like those are kind of some of the statements. But uh, realizing that uh, what part of your, the journey are you in? Uh, and then just being really, so, so that other people can see, we process that in relationship. Can we be in close enough relationship with other people to where we don't, like God isn't a side topic, you know, but we can talk about, yeah, this is what I'm really processing as I'm struggling to talk, uh, to think about what I believe about the world. And I'm kind of coming to understand that Jesus is the main thing about the world. And we talk about other people, with other people about that. I think with community, conversion to the community, uh, it, it expresses itself by inviting people into the community, inviting people to participate and see and get to know and um, for example, a few weeks ago, uh, some of our good friends that are good friends with other people in our missional community, uh, he was diagnosed with uh, terrible cancer. Uh, he finally got to that remission moment, you know, where you get to ring the bell and uh, come out. And especially during COVID, you know, that was a big moment. And so we went out to eat. Uh, all six of us and just celebrate and celebrate his life, celebrate how much we loved him and how thankful we were for him. And he got to do the same. And then we spent way too much money on food. Like, yeah, don't blindly go out to eat with people in Los Angeles. Yeah, this is scary. <laughs> don't be like, hey, you picked the restaurant. Uh, but it was good. It was this celebration of life. And, and for them to see, uh, for us that were Christians, our mutual love for each other and for him to taste and see, oh, this is what it's like to be, uh, to be loved in a community. We're the only people that asked them how they were doing while they're going through cancer. We're the only ones that brought them little gifts along the way. It was just, it was just us. And they got to taste and see 
the community. And then I think the conversion to the mission looks a lot like, uh, I think we're, we're all put in the places we are for a purpose. So I think mission isn't just evangelism, uh, and you're not at work just to share the gospel with people. Uh, you're at work to do your job. I mean, this sounds crazy. You're at work to do what they pay you for. But every job has just like this incredible intrinsic value to the shalom and the prosperity and the thriving of the world. And if you doubt it, you can come talk to me and I'll, I'll, I've gotten really good at showing how it gets played out because I've worked some of those rough, terrible jobs that nobody wants to do. It's like, I clean cars for a living. How is that the gospel coming to bear? But working, uh, doing your purpose in life, the, uh, because we all have multiple ones of family dynamics and work stuff and, uh, and people that we just love. But when we're converted into the mission of God, we begin to orient all of that stuff around uh, his purpose and we see it that way. And the way we're going about life with purpose is super different than the way that other people are going through life with purpose. And, then, and that requires a lot of explaining to people, like, why do you love engineering these things? Because I'm here just for the paycheck. But you're, it seems like you're not here for just the paycheck. Like, why is that? Um, and so those are, those are, I don't know if that's super, super helpful, but that's a lot of it. That's our strategies. Get them into our community. Get them friends with us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's some of what I was sharing. So um, each of our communities in our church have people that they're trying to welcome into the community and build in. Uh, and I think that there's a, where we live, there's a lot of gloom. It's sunny all the time, but people mostly think that the world's going to end like tomorrow. And so being a hope dealer in a community of hope often looks like, nah, like we actually believe that the world's gonna end in thriving and it's gonna end with peace and uh, the kind of real prosperity, not like a bunch of people have money and everybody has the same amount of money, but that there's human relationships and connections. So explaining that uh, is like the hope dealer and then people are like, why could you possibly believe that? And so then, yeah, talking about like, well, we believe Jesus really rose from the dead and that, that definitely changes your outlook on the future. And they're like, how do you? And so we actually do a lot of tools on how to explain that Jesus rose from the dead. So that's a big um, part of our resourcing to the church um, to make that case and that reasoning. So, and I think that's what Paul meant is to give people, to point people to the, to the scriptures and the gospel and to explain that to people in ways that they can understand. Politics? Apologetics, yeah, totally. So, and there's, a, there's actually a great book that just came out, but I've been to uh, the, the writer's webinars and lectures, but it's called Contagious Faith. Uh, and he talks about, there's five um, skills, or five styles, sorry, five styles of evangelism that's really super helpful. And so, there's the friendship maker style of evangelism. There's the storyteller evangelist. There's the serving uh, unconditionally evangelist. There's the um, 
apologetics, like reasoning evangelist. And then there's the truth teller evangelist. And part of the premise of that whole thing is we're all, we all have these ways that we can do it and we need all five and nobody has all five, but usually we think, oh, just the person who's really eloquent and can talk, like that's what they need to be. Like that's your way of being an evangelist. And so we're trying to build our communities where like each of those styles is present and existing and affirmed. And so not everyone has to be the apologetics guru. You could just share your own life story. And maybe that's your deal is when you're around people, uh, you're the kind of person that can talk about what Jesus is doing in your life and in other people's lives just super freely and bravely. Maybe you're a friend maker who just brings people into the group all the time. And you think through the relational dynamics of who should I have, who should this person connect with in my community? Um, but we need, we need all of those. But we do, we do a like, kind of strong emphasis in our church around apologetics in general, mostly because they're being taught to believe a whole different worldview constantly, just, just like you guys. But, um, and so we do a lot of apologetics to us, you know, to one another. Yeah. It, it sounds like an underlying thing to a lot of what you're saying is so we have to know the story of God, obviously. We also have to know the story of our city or our particular place. Mm-hmm. A lot of the, the line, like when I hear you talk about LA or your neighborhood or these different places that you've been, you have a deep awareness and understanding of the kind of the, the one fundamental story mm. that, that that city is telling. Yeah. What is it, it helps figure out those specifics of the story, the better story that we need to tell if we're going to be Absolutely. Yeah. What Ben just that said. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, that we would so know the story of our neighborhood and the people that we love and God's story, and we're able to share it to them. Yeah. How can you, yeah, you know, give them that? the time has come kind of moment for them. Yeah, which is, you know, the gospel's so comprehensive and it is good news for all things that, um, yeah, really everybody's story finds its rest and hope in the gospel in one way or another. Yeah, or there, uh, we, we sometimes talk about beachhead gospel Metaphors or proclamate, like the thing that gets you, you know, when we're storming Normandy, we're trying to establish a beachhead in France to liberate Europe. Uh, And so with the gospel and the people that we love, I think it's what is that one strategic spot where we can create that beachhead uh, where, where the rest of the gospel can come flushing through. And sometimes for people that's, I mean, every city, every place has its own thing, but... Like, is it the environment? So a lot of people, environmental anxiety. And, and it's like, is that the part that, that, because the gospel has a lot to say about creation and new creation and a, and a world restored. Is it politics? A lot of people have a lot to think about politics. Uh, is it work? Is it family of origin? Is it parents? Is it, um, you know, pleasure even in sexuality? Like all of that stuff can become... The beachhead, yeah.
but it is good to learn people. Like, it is one of the intuitive things that I do is ask people a lot, like, what's this place like? What are you like? What is, you know, what's your biggest struggle or biggest fear? Um, what are you worried about these days? Is a great question to ask. Because, you know, there's, everybody can do small talk for seven minutes. Now we're getting super into it. Everybody, do you know that? Everybody small talk seven minutes. After seven minutes, that's when there's a really big awkward pause. <laughs> and people look down at their forks and, uh, or begin to come up with things in their head. I need to go make a photocopy. Uh, it's after seven minutes. So if at the seven minute mark in a relation, because that's how long it takes to be like, oh wow, this weather, right? Yeah, man. Do you put in your TPS form this week? Oh yeah, I did, it was great. Like, it takes seven minutes to do that part of the talk. But then if there's some questions that you can ask at the, the end of that small talk, it's too aggressive to ask it at the beginning. This is my tip. Uh, but like, <laughs> hey, like, what are you worried about these days? Or, man, what's giving you a lot of happiness and joy these days? Like, those, are, those two questions right there will... Not, I'm not saying like that's how you share the gospel in that moment, but it'll help you grow in a deep affection for the people who don't know Jesus that you work with, to know what they're worried about these days.